there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. She has 16 books to her credit, and we have some of them in our bookstore, and a couple that particularly you might be interested in, The Shadow of the Almighty. But the one I particularly want to share with you tonight has been produced for this conference. It's just off the press, called Passion and Purity. It's a fabulous book. As I have looked at the table of contents, I just, it was just put in my hand. That's how fresh it is for this conference. And, but to read you just a little bit about her purpose in writing it, the framework of the book is the story of five and a half years of loving one man, Jim, and of learning the disciplines of longing, loneliness, uncertainty, hope, trust, and unconditional commitment to Christ, a commitment which required that regardless of what passion we might feel, we must be pure. Ruth Graham has written the introduction, and she says, So amid today's too crooked thinking, Elizabeth Elliot Grin has come up with a straight stick and a beautiful, unforgettable one at that. It's great for both men and women. A bonus book in the bookstore, just off the press, early for you. I present to you now Elizabeth Elliot. Thank you so much. On Wednesday night, Dr. Graham told us how he had revised his image, having seen Bill Bright on the screen and realizing that he was going to have to measure up to that standard. He changed his outfit, and I thought he looked pretty striking myself. But I have to confess that when I saw that giant screen and realized that my face would be projected in jumbo dimensions <laughs> with jumbo wrinkles and giant flaws. I was reminded of the old woman whose photograph, according to her friends, didn't do her justice. This screen does us justice right now, but as the old woman said, it's not justice I need, it's mercy. I want to say that I remember that there are about 4,000 of you in the auditorium, not here in this room tonight. I know you're there. I wish I could see you all. I really can't see very many of you because of the lights in my face. <laughs> a few generations ago, a young Scottish athlete was put to the test. An athlete put to the test, you say, so what else is new? happens all the time. It's the only way to become an athlete. Training, coaching, endurance, tests. The one I'm talking about was put to a test not by his coach, but by his God. With every chance of winning a gold medal, 
This man went to France to run in the Olympics. Test came the minute he got off the boat. Somebody told him that his race was to be run on Sunday. You know who, am I, who I'm talking about. Eric Little, I heard somebody say that. The man in the film, Chariots of Fire. Little was a Scottish Presbyterian. Running a race on Sunday was to him unthinkable. Do you remember what happens next in the film? Does he get in touch with his feelings? Do you find him sharing his hang-ups with 38 of his closest friends? You don't see any of that. The decision is already made. The decision has been made years before. As a matter of fact, when he made up his mind to follow Jesus Christ in obedience. Jesus was Lord of Eric Little's life. That settled a whole lot of things before they even came up. One of the most moving scenes in the movie was the one in which the president of the Olympic Games and the Prince of Wales tried to persuade him that he has made a foolish choice. One of them suggests that it is arrogance to put his personal convictions above the glory of the British Empire. With perfect courtesy and perfect resolution, in a quiet voice, Little answers that the arrogance lies in the man who would seek to persuade another to act against his conscience. Little was a man who knew what really mattered. The price, that gold medal, was not too high for him to pay. Does anything matter that much to you? The God who put the Olympic runner to the test has been doing the same thing for a long time. Some of you might have read a book called Genesis. In chapter 22, it says this, the time came when God put Abraham to the test. Abraham he called and Abraham replied, here I am. God said, take your son Isaac, your only son whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. There you shall offer him as a sacrifice on one of the hills, which I will show you. Can you imagine a command like that? What would you do? I bet I can guess you'd struggle. Everywhere I go, young people talk to me of how they're struggling with this and that. I mean, like, you know, I'm just really struggling, you know, just really, really struggling. Sometimes struggling is a nice word for postponed obedience. The book doesn't say a word about Abraham's feelings. If he worked through his feelings, he did a mighty quick job of it. You know what the book says? Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his ass and went out. Immediate obedience. Abraham knew his God. That was what mattered. Hundreds of years later, God was still sifting the hearts of men. A man came to Jesus. Master, he said, what good must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus said, if you wish to go the whole way, go and sell your possessions. Give to the poor, and then you will have riches in heaven, and come, follow me. That man knew what mattered most to him, money. The book says he turned away sadly, 
for he had a heavy, for he had great wealth. He was too rich to follow. That's what it comes down to. Do you know what really matters to you? Have you made up your mind about that? The tests are coming. I promise you they're coming. If you're anything like me, you'd like to have some idea of what the tests are going to be. I can't tell you what the specific tests will be that God will use to sift your heart. But I'm going to tell you what they've been for some 20th century Christians. But first I'll tell you what to expect in this talk. I'll tell you what I'm going to say, then I'm going to try to say it, and then I'll try to tell you what I've said. After that, I'm going to shut up. You know, they say that a speaker has four speeches, the one that he prepares, the one he gives, the one the audience thinks it heard, and the one that the press reports the next day. There's not necessarily any connection at all between them. My talk tonight is about endurance. Ever heard that? Ever heard that word? Three points. Can you remember three? Number one, what do you live for? Number two, how do you get it? And number three, is it worth it? What do you live for? How do you get it? Is it worth it? Number one, what do you live for? Honestly now, what is it? I wanted to give you a chance to answer that question for yourselves. It's one question about which you simply must make up your mind. If there's one thing that seems to be a problem for students these days, it's making up their minds. They don't have any difficulty whatever knowing what kind of music they like, what they want on their Big Macs, and what kind of a car they'd buy if they had about $40,000 to throw around. They know the answers to those questions, but I'm talking about things that matter a little bit more than those things. Things like, well, I mean, like, you know, I'm just not really sure whether I can hack it with this roommate for the rest of the year. And I mean, like, you know, I really don't know whether I should major in political science or home economics. And I mean, like, you know, it's, it's just really hard. And I'm just not... And I'm just not really sure I know what I'm going to be and, you know, like, maybe I should switch and I'm not sure I came to the right college and, well, my career, you know, like my dad wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that, but I'm just not really sure what I want to do. And then there's this girl in my life and, well, we've got this neat, like, you know, relationship and all, but, well, I mean, like, you know, I'm just not sure I'm ready for all that stuff and, like, commitment and all, you know what I mean? I haven't really made up my mind. Am I ringing any bells out there? What have you made up your mind about in the last, let's say, two years? You know what you want in music, in a car, on a hamburger? Do you know what you really want in life? The Quechua Indians in the jungle of Ecuador had a very handy word that worked for an answer to anything. The word was yanga. 
and it means for nothing, for no particular purpose. I remember one time a young Indian came to my husband Jim Elliott and told him that he wanted to be baptized, and Jim said, why? And he said, huh? And Jim said, why do you want to be baptized? And he said, younger, for nothing, no particular reason. Well, Jim said, you're going to have to come up with a better answer than that. What do you live for? Younger? I want to tell you a little bit about that missionary, Jim Elliott. I knew him when he was a college student. As far as we women could see, he was unattainable. Handsome, popular, champion wrestler, president of the Foreign Missions Fellowship, honors student, campus clown, but alas, a woman hater. That's what we thought. And incidentally, guys, if you want them to swarm around you, let them think you're unattainable. Give them something to wonder about. But we were way off. Jim Elliott was no woman hater. He had found out when he was in high school that he could spend an awful lot of time and money on girls. They were very attractive and very interesting and very expensive. And so he decided when he got to college that he would just delete them from his schedule. sounded like the men that were cheering on that one. <laughs> he wanted something much more important. He had made up his mind that he wanted two degrees, a Bachelor of Arts, which the college was qualified to confer, and an AUG, which the college was not qualified to confer. The one he wanted most was AUG, approved unto God. He got that out of the Apostle Paul's letter to Timothy, and he had made up his mind what he wanted to live for. I found out how resolute Jim was in this decision when the college yearbooks came out. I don't even know whether you have college yearbooks anymore, and I certainly don't have any idea whether you go rushing around trying to get all your friends' autographs in them, but that's what we used to do. And we girls would hope forlornly that the man that we had our eye on might put something besides his name in the book, something sweet. And it was with great trepidation that I presented my book to Jim Elliott, asking for his autograph. And very fast, with his flowing, rapid hand, he wrote, Jim Elliott, 2 Timothy 2.4. How long do you think it took me to get back to the dormitory and get my Bible to look up that verse? <laughs> I was desperately hoping for a cryptic message. There was nothing cryptic about it. It said, A soldier on active service will not let himself be involved in civilian affairs. It's not the end of the verse. He must be wholly at his commanding officer's disposal. Now think back to Eric Little. How had he gotten to be a champion runner? By putting himself at the disposal of a coach, by learning the rules, by being obedient. Obedience to a track coach is bound to involve 
a tremendous amount of something called endurance. This brings me to my second point. You've already forgotten the first one. It was, what do you live for? Number two, how do you get it? Whatever it is you want, it's going to cost you something. Eric Little put his gold medal on the line. Abraham, his beloved son. Jim Elliott, his life, ultimately. If you want a 3.2-liter Ferrari with torsion bar suspension and Porti Venturi carburetors, it's going to cost you something. Most of you, if you had the money to buy that kind of a car, would not feel that it was a sacrifice. It would be well worth it. If it's God's will you want more than anything in the world, it's going to mean endurance. Where did I get that idea? Isn't the Christian life supposed to be happiness all the time, wonderful peace of mind, and feeling comfortable about things? Lots of good feelings and lots of good vibes. I heard a song about, I love the feeling that I get when I get together with God's wonderful people. Isn't that the way it's supposed to be? Listen to what the writer to the Hebrews says. You need endurance if you are to do God's will and attain what he has promised. You need endurance. Do you feel comfortable with that word? I don't. We like to feel comfortable about everything. Do you think those thousands of hours pounding the cinders were soothing to Eric Little? How relaxed do you think Abraham felt as he toiled up that mountain with his donkey and his servant and the wood to roast his son? Relaxed? Comfortable? Listen to what an old preacher of the 17th century named Samuel Rutherford wrote. It costs Christ and all his followers sharp showers and hot sweats ere they win to the top of the mountain. But still our soft nature would have heaven coming to our bedside when we are sleeping and lying down with us that we might go to heaven in warm clothes. But all that came there found wet feet by the way and sharp storms that did take the hide off their faces and found twos and fro's and ups and downs and many enemies by the way. How shall we late 20th century Americans and whoever else is here, how shall we who hardly know what the word suffering means ever grasp this idea so central to the gospel that following Jesus Christ means a cross? The cross was an instrument of torture. Would you wear an electric chair and a little gold chain around your neck? It was the Roman method of execution. If you wish to go the whole way, Jesus said to the rich young man, sell everything. The whole way. Jesus put his finger instantly on the crucial point. The man's money, his possessions, get rid of it, he said. Then follow me. Who wants to hear that? Who takes that kind of discipleship seriously? Some people do. 
I want to encourage you to see that it's still possible to believe that God means what he says. He expects us to trust him, and he offers us staggering rewards, if only we'll endure. Let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, before you were born, there were in Ecuador a tribe of so-called savages. Not very much was known about these people. They were naked, they used stone tools, and they killed strangers. Nobody had ever gone into their territory and come out alive. Missionaries had been praying that God would en enable them someday to take the gospel to these Alcas, but it had never happened. And it wasn't until 1956 that the first Operation Alca was attempted. Five young American men banded together to do this. I want to tell you a little about who they were and how they got there. First, there was Nate Saint from Philadelphia, one of the founders of the Missionary Aviation Fellowship. He inaugurated the program of jungle flying in the eastern jungle of Ecuador. Pilots who have watched film footage of some of Nate's landings on those canyons of green trees in the jungle have said that it's impossible. Nate was a genius. He was a rather slightly built blonde guy with a terrific sense of humor a creative imagination and an almost fanatical discipline and caution as a flyer. Then there was Roger Udarian, a cowboy from Montana. He went into World War II as a paratrooper, was wounded, and somehow he ended up in the eastern jungle of Ecuador working with the Hibados, those Indians that you've heard of who used to shrink people's heads and put them up on poles around their houses or wear them on their belts really nice guys. The next man was Pete Fleming from Seattle, Washington, an earnest scholarly type who had a master's degree in literature and planned on an academic career. God had another plan for Pete, and Pete ended up in the jungle of Ecuador, working with the Quechua Indians, reducing their language to writing and beginning the rudiments of Bible translation. Ed McCulley was a guy that I knew in college. And when I think back, there's hardly anybody who seemed less likely to me to become a missionary than Ed McCulley. He was handsome. Good looks can open a lot, of, a lot of doors, but I don't think they'll get you very far on the mission field. Doesn't it seem like kind of a waste? I mean, here was this guy, six feet three, football player, track star, president of his class. And when the Hearst newspaper chain sponsored a nationwide oratorical contest, there were 20,000 entrants. Just picture everybody that's at KC83 entering that oratorical contest. Ed McCulley won first place. He was smooth. We thought he'd make a great politician. That's what he was going to be. He had charisma. And he went to law school. But God changed his mind after he got into law school, and somehow he, too, ended up in some godforsaken corner of the eastern jungle of Ecuador, again, a missionary to the Quechuas. Why would a guy like that bury himself in the jungle? Couldn't he find more fruitful ways to use his gifts? All those talents that God had given him, wasn't that an awful waste? Well, yes, it was. If what matters to you is self-image, fame, money, success, terrible waste. The backwoods 
isn't really a very auspicious place to pursue those kinds of things. Then there was the fifth man, one I got to know pretty well. His name was Jim Elliott. I've already told you what he was after when he went to college, the AUG degree. If what you really want is God's approval, it's going to mean endurance, sharp showers and hot sweats. You know, I'm really baffled up here because I was told I was going to have some cards telling me about my time. Is somebody down there? Okay, I can hardly see you. I'm going to have to peer at you every now and then. You don't just decide one Tuesday morning that you're going to be a hero of the faith. There has to be a period, a long period, maybe years, of learning to walk humbly in obedience with God. You put one foot in front of the other, one step at a time, one day at a time, year after year, beginning now when you're students. Endurance is not limited to term papers, trudging through the snow, staying up all night preparing for examinations. That certainly requires a measure of endurance. During Jim's junior year, he went through what he used to call an exercise, a wrestling with God over some issue. In this case, the issue was marriage. Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote quite a bit about the advantages of being single. He wished that everyone were as he was, single. And Jim had a sneaking suspicion that 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 was exactly what God might be calling him to do, to remain single for the rest of his life. It had nothing to do with being Jim's thing. It had nothing to do with his temperaments or preferences. He really did like women. But his response was, okay, if that's what God wants, that's what I'm going to do. Does it sound easy? Does it sound simple? It wasn't. You can read about it in this book, Shadow of the Almighty, diary entries from Jim Elliot telling about the struggles of his soul. He went through some agonies. But when a man says an unconditional yes to God, God is going to test the validity of his commitment. How would you expect the test to come? What kind of endurance was God going to require in this disciple's training? Remember what he said to Abraham, take your son, Isaac, offer him as a sacrifice. There's a profound spiritual principle here. It's one you need to understand if you are going to understand commitment and endurance as a follower of Jesus Christ. Your heart must be sifted. That means that some very good things must be offered to God, not just bad things forsaken. In Lilius Trotter's beautiful book, Parables of the Cross, she describes the death-life cycle of plants, which illustrates the spiritual processes that must go on in us if we are to die to self and live to God. This is what she says, the fair new petals must fall, and for no visible reason. No one seems enriched by the stripping, and the first step into the realm of giving is a like surrender, not manward but godward, an utter yielding of our best.
So long as our idea of surrender is limited to the renouncing of unlawful things, we have never grasped its true meaning. That is not worthy of the name, for no polluted thing can be offered. Did you ever see it like that? The loveliness of the flower has to go. The test for Jim Elliot was falling in love. Anything wrong with that? He was swept off his feet by love for a girl. She had been attracted to him for a long time and had been wrestling with God over the same question of singleness. And like Jim had finally said, yes, Lord, if that's what you're asking, I'll do it. I'll be a single missionary. I remember that commitment very well. I was that girl. I remember Memorial Day 1948, just before I was to graduate. Jim asked me to go for a walk with him. Jim Elliott asking me to go for a walk, I nearly died. Could hardly breathe for excitement. I tell you this because I want you to know that I've been where you are. I know your feelings. Well, Bet, Jim said, I guess we better get squared away about how we feel about each other. I nearly went through the sidewalk. Feel about each other? What gave him the idea that I had any feelings for him? I thought I'd been doing a terrific job of concealing my feelings. I wasn't just playing hard to get. I was determined to be just like Jim, impossible to get. I have to make a long story short here. You can read the details if you want to in Shadow of the Almighty and in Passion and Purity. And incidentally, somebody asked me this afternoon if Passion and Purity is for men as well as for women. And I would say no, unless you happen to be a man who has some passions or has ever had any struggles with purity. In that case, it's for you. Anyway, Jim and I went to a park and we sat on the grass and talked for seven hours. What were we to make of this tornado of passion we suddenly felt for each other? Did it mean that God wanted us to forget all the agonies we'd gone through over our singleness struggles and just fall into each other's arms? We had a few weeks before graduation. We took some more walks. We did some more pondering and praying alone and some more talking together. One night we wandered into a cemetery and found ourselves sitting on a convenient marble slab trying to sort through what God was trying to tell us. I said that it really didn't make a whole lot of sense to me that to tell God that we wanted him to handle this whole thing if we intended to keep our hands on. It was going to have to be hands off, turning it entirely over to the Lord. You see, after graduation, there wasn't much chance that we were going to see each other because Jim had another year in college. He lived in Oregon. I lived in New Jersey. He was headed for, this, for South America. I thought I was headed for Africa or perhaps the South Seas. Does it make sense to you? I asked him. Should we write? He didn't say anything for a while, and then we sat there in silence, and finally he said, you're right. It doesn't make sense. And I know you're right because this morning the passage that I was reading in my Bible was about Abraham and Isaac. Abraham made the sacrifice. He tied the sun down on the altar and he raised the knife. And I knew right then that God was asking me to give up the most precious thing in my life, you. Would I give it to him or would I refuse? I said I'd give it. So that's where you're going to stay, that, he said, on the altar. Unless God shows me that I don't need to make that 
final sacrifice. And was, there was another long silence, and then suddenly we realized that the moon had risen behind us and was casting the shadow of a stone cross between us on that slab. In the book that I just mentioned, Passion and Purity, I've quoted the poem that I wrote in my journal on that occasion. Hold thou thy cross between us, blessed Lord. Let us love thee. To us thy power afford to remain prostrate at thy pierced feet. There is no other place where we may meet. Set thou our faces as a flint of stone to do thy will. Our goal be this alone. O God, our hearts are fixed. Let us not turn. Consume all our affections. Let thy love burn. You need endurance. You'll have to pay a price. You'll find out about sharp storms and hot sweats. They don't always come in the form you envision when you think about the great heroes of the faith. I'm giving you just one example of the form it took for a couple of college students 36 years ago. We wanted, above everything else, the will of God. And here is the crux of the matter. And by the way, did you know that the word crux means cross? Did you know that the word crucial comes from the same root? Until the will and the affections are brought under the authority of Christ, we have not begun to understand, let alone to accept, his lordship. The cross, as it enters the love life, will reveal the heart's truth. I'm convinced that this is the point at which many young people refuse the cross refuse to endure hardship. The 11th chapter of Hebrews lists what we call heroes of the faith. You know the stories, Abel's sacrifice, Noah's ark, Abraham's long journey, Sarah's late pregnancy, Moses in the bulrushes. But did you ever think about some of the mundane aspects of their heroism? Ever think about the jealousy of Cain and what it did to his brother Abel? Ever think about the scoffing of Noah's neighbors while he was building that ark on dry land? Ever think about what Noah and his family endured when they got into the boat? Think about the mewing and barking and roaring and clucking and grunting and whistling and chattering and peeping and hissing and quacking and trumpeting and growling and squeaking and snarling and mooing and braying and neighing and whinnying and howling and growling. I mean, talk about a racket. Forty days and forty nights. Abraham endured. Jim and I waited five and a half years before God gave us a green light to get married. We didn't go through anything like those people I've just listed, but it was a form of endurance. It was tough enough for us at the time. It was a test. Were we going to trust God during all those years of silence and separation and uncertainty? Mind you, we had no commitment to each other. I haven't time to tell you the rest of the story. I want to say this much, that on our wedding day, the Lord gave us a verse from Isaiah. This is our God. We have waited for him. It was worth it.
That brings me to the last point. Is it worth it? One day in October of 1955, Nate Saint flew into our station to tell us that he had discovered some Alka houses. Within a very short time, Ed McCulley, that politician from Wisconsin, Jim Elliott from Oregon, and Nate Saint instituted a program of dropping gifts to those Indians with the hope that they would be able to break down their hostility and prepare the way for an attempt to reach them. You can imagine our excitement, our trembling, the prayers that went up. And on the evening in January of 1956, just before these men left to go in to the edge of Alka territory, by this time they had been joined by Roger Udarian and Pete Fleming, they sang together that hymn, We Rest on Thee, Our Shield and Our Defender. A week later, they were all speared to death. Why? Two of the men who killed them are friends of mine now. Their names are Minkayi and Gikita. And they made tapes for me telling me everything about what had happened that afternoon on the beach. And they said they thought the men were cannibals. Why would God allow a thing like that to happen? He was their shield, their defender, and he let them get speared to death. What had happened? Can your faith cope with a set of facts like this? There is a mystery here, but it is not unprecedented. Go back to Hebrews 11, and following all those wonderful, triumphant accounts, we read and others were tortured. They faced jeers and flogging, fetters and prison bars. They were stoned. They were, listen to this, sawn in two. Talk about endurance. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? How many things can you think of that are worth suffering for? We lived across the street from a high school, and I couldn't believe the forms of torture that those high school kids would go through in order to play football, just throwing themselves at those padded steel teeth, jumping in and out of rubber tires and going face down into the mud. For what? For football. How many things can you think of that are worth living for? I want you to listen, ladies and gentlemen, young men, young women, there is nothing worth living for unless it's worth dying for. Have you made up your mind? The world was stunned when the news of the death of the five men hit the headlines. People did not know that there were still Stone Age savages around. I suppose that's one of the reasons they were impressed. And very few people realized that there could still be ordinary young men for whom obedience to Jesus Christ was quite literally a matter of life or death. There was plenty of editorializing about it. The secular press called them blankety-blank fools. The Christian press did a lot of very glib explaining 
of why God would allow a thing like this to happen. The verse that brought assurance to me was 1 John 2.17, the world and all its passionate desires will one day disappear, but the man who is following the will of God is part of the permanent and cannot die. Ask the football star who has finally made the cover of Time magazine if it's worth all those miserable afternoons in the slush. Ask Noah if the jeers of his neighbors bothered him very much after they got into the ark. Ask Ed McCulley if he still wishes he had pursued that career in politics. Ask Abraham whether it was worth the agonies he went through when he went up the mountain. Ask Jesus. Ask him what it was like to leave the ivory palaces and come into this world of woe. Ask him about Gethsemane and the cross of Calvary. What does the book say about him? Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured a cross, making light of its disgrace, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. He made himself nothing. Jim Elliot wrote in his diary when he was 22, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Were those men really out of their tree to do what they did? In Hebrews 12 it says, what of ourselves? With all these witnesses surrounding us like a cloud, we must throw off every encumbrance, every sin to which we cling, and run with resolution the race for which we are entered, our eyes fixed on Jesus, on whom faith depends from start to finish. I don't know what particular endurance God is asking of you right this minute. Perhaps it's in your love life. In the willingness to submit your longings and to wait patiently for God's best for you, to stay out of bed. God is saying, I have something infinitely better for you than you can imagine. Will you trust me? Will you wait? Will you obey me? I promised you that I'd tell you what I was going to say, and then I would try to say it, and then I'd tell you what I've said. First, I asked, what do you live for? Is it for yourself, for the world, for the devil, or is it for God? Secondly, how do you get it? By obedience, by endurance, by blood, sweat, tears. Third, is it worth it? Jesus, for the joy, endured a cross. My husband and I live on the coast of Massachusetts. Do you know what motto is posted in every rescue station along the coast? 
You have to go out. You don't have to come back. That, I believe, should be the motto of every Christian. You have to go out. You don't have to come back. Maybe I've come across to you tonight as tough, insensitive, dogmatic, ignorant of where you're at. I hope not. But in case I have, let me assure you that the Lord knows exactly where you're at. He loves you more than you can possibly imagine. He's got things up his sleeve that are so much better than your best dreams that it would blow your mind. But he asks you to trust him. Jim Elliot often used to quote a poem written by Amy Carmichael of India. He quoted this frequently when he spoke to student groups. And it is with these words that I close. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against a tree to die, and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me. I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? But as the master must the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has nor wound nor scar? I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>